welcome to the Celtic History Podcast, Episode 9. Hello and welcome back. Last time we looked at the great fortress of the Hörneberg and used it as an anchor to talk about societal organisation and trade, mainly focused on the trade routes south into Etruria and north to the Baltic Sea along the Amber Road. We also touched on the trade back east to the Indo-European homeland with the Scythians and how these horse lords may have influenced our Indo-European Hallstatt Celts. I'll admit that I basically ran out of ink when making that episode, as I feel we haven't even scratched the surface of the Hallstatt Golden Age. So today we're going to shift our focus to another hill fort, this one further west, Vix in modern day France. This site will give us the opportunity to expand on concepts also found at the Hörneberg, as well as shift our focus west. This is a handy segue into discussing the end of the Hallstatt period, which is thought to have been caused also by a shift in focus west, as Hallstatt transitions into Latin culture. The site of Vix is located south of Troyes in North Dijon. As many similarities with various sites located in south-central Germany, it too can be characterised as a multi-layered hill fort with many tumuli in the surrounding grounds with princely graves of equal stature to those previously discussed, so-called wagon burials. In truth, the description I placed in the mouth of our Italian narrator last time was as influenced by Vix as the Herneberg, and just like the giant's castle, this settlement was a three-ring hill fort which was classic in the later 1st and 2nd century BC, and in fact throughout the Iron Age. Like the Hörneberg, we see pit houses, hearths, stilt storage, as well as metallurgy workshops which also contain living quarters in the same or similar areas, which reinforces the social stratification that we saw at the Hörneberg and other important sites. Vix had a few key differences, however, but one aspect that marks this settlement is firmly in what archaeologists tentatively refer to as the Western Hallstatt Zone. The first two differences are the presence of more typical fortifications that the white Mediterranean walls of the Hünneberg. These are known as, excuse my pronunciation, Fotzenschlitzmauer, or post-slot wall, which is a typical style of hill fort wall used from the Bronze Age all the way up to the early Middle Ages, and its locations vary from Czechia to Scotland. It is less specialised than the wall we see at the Giant's Castle, but nonetheless a formidable one, and the Romans would later note that the Celts were masters of pairing these type of fortifications with the terrain to enhance their defences, which we do see in the archaeological record throughout Europe. This is perhaps where the stereotype of the Celts being one with nature comes from, as they built with the land rather than clearing and building a template like the Romans did. The second feature which I plopped into the Hörneberg last episode is the famous Palace of Vix. The vivid description I have of the Chieftain's Hall last episode was in fact a description of the stunning palace partially, because at the time I could not find a detailed description of the palace at the Hörneberg. However, there was something at Vix that was not at the Hörneberg. This was not just a palace, but a palace complex. Five buildings, including a portico, a domos, a circular hearth, and four columns supporting roof. These buildings, if found together in 
the Mediterranean world would be called a megaron. Sound familiar? This is a feature of any Greek settlement needing a place to trade. That is a level of Greek influence not yet seen in any of our settlements, and it warrants some further explanation. To find the route of our journey, we must travel far to the other side of the Mediterranean, to the Aegean, and from there, the western Turkish coast. Here lies the Greek city-state of Phokia, in the heart of Anatolian Greece. If you cast your mind back to our episode on the rest of the Mediterranean world, we discuss the rise of Greek colonies which began to compete and rival the Phoenician and Etruscan colonies for valuable trade resources. Phokia's contribution to this were the colonies of Massalia to compete with the Etruscans' reach north, and Emporion to compete with the Phoenicians' link into Iberia. We will return to Emporion when we cover the Celtiberians and the Iberians. Massalia, however, is an essential part of our story, not simply for its influence on Vix, but also it is believed to be the prime catalyst which led from Hallstatt to Latin. If we cast our mind back to the start of the Hallstatt Sea period, which you will all no doubt remember, is when Hallstatt becomes distinct from its Urnfield predecessor, this corresponds, although is not necessarily caused by, the founding of Pithecusae at the start of the 8th century BCE. And we then go on to see Greek goods among the Etruscan in Hallstatt princely burials. Massalia was founded around 600 BCE, which also is approximately the start of the Hallstatt D period. Massalia was likely founded exactly to undercut the Etruscan monopoly on the trade routes through the Alps, and the use of the river system in eastern Gaul to access the raw materials not at present on the continent. The founding myth recounted by Aristotle is very telling and is as follows. The Phokians who inhabit Ionia were traders and founded Massalia. Eunexus of Phokia was a guest friend of King Nanos, which was indeed his name. Eunexus happened to be visiting when this Nanos was celebrating his daughter's wedding, and he invited them to the feast. The wedding was organized as follows. After the meal, the girl had to come in and offer a bowl full of wine mixed with water to whichever suitor there she wanted, and whoever she gave it to would be her bridegroom. When the girl entered the room, she gave the bowl, either by accident or for some other reason, to Eunexus. Her name was Peta. After this happened, and her father decided that the gift had been made in accord with the god's will, so that he ought to have her. Eunexus married and set up housekeeping with her, although he changed her name, this, there is still a family in Massalia today, descended from her and known as the Prodati, because Protus was the son of Eunexus and Aristone. Factual or not, it does demonstrate that relationship with the local Celts was key to founding of the city, and hence the myth has a spirit of cooperation and relationship building. Now, I use the word Celt here because the Keltoi, from the Greek word, which we have discussed previously, is first used in this context. So if any of the many, many peoples that we are going to discuss over the next months and years 
are deserving of the name Celtic, it is these first tribesmen along the Rhone River. This leads me into my first digression, which is from now on I am going to try and refer to the Hallstatt people as Hallstatt, Laten as Laten, or by their individual tribe uh, or affiliated groups. The idea behind this podcast is to talk about Celtic history, but that is a bit of a misnomer. We're going to talk about all the people who have been called Celts throughout their history all the way up to the modern day, but the mystery of what is and is not a Celt is something we're going to discover together on this journey. Perhaps none of them are, but the word Keltoi is first used around this time and in this context. Factual or not, it does demonstrate that a relationship with the local Keltoi was key to the founding of the city, and hence the myth has a spirit of cooperation and relationship building, which may have a kernel of truth. Although some of the later Greeks of Massalia would choose a more confrontational path with the local Gauls, at this time the Ionian Greeks clearly saw the wealth inland and it soon became a trade hub for precious metals. Well situated opposite the mouth of the Rhone River, this river could be followed to bragne sur which became a major trading centre between the two cultures and it is situated on the northwestern edge of the Hallstatt chiefdoms. Here, savvy Massalian traders would barter and trade finished luxury goods and wine in exchange for raw materials such as our Hallstatt salt, timber, iron, copper, and, as we mentioned, even Cornish tin. Just imagine the bustling wagons of trade goods, the chattering between interpreters in Greek, Celtic, Etruscan, Liguirian dialects, and perhaps even Iberian, or other languages which are yet lost to us. Perhaps even representatives from the leaders of Fix and other hill forts, with competing nobles like is theorised at the Honneburg. Further up the river was Mount Grand, which was another hill fort and power centre, as directly north of this location was the source of the Seine River. A short distance from the source of the sound was Vix, which of the Hallstatt chieftains who have seen so far had the best access to the British Isles and that North Atlantic trade route we discussed all the way back during the Bellbeaker episodes. The site of Vix was on the very edge of what's now termed the Western Hallstatt Zone. Vix itself massively benefited from this relationship as seen by the palace and the wealth of its burials. So, Vix had access to the value trade with the Greek colonies and access to the metal-rich Atlantic coast, leading to our first sign of material Hallstatt influence, however limited, onto the British Isles. Hallstatt goods are only really found in East Anglia and the southeast coast, but at least this establishes an initial link with our with the interior of the continent. And in fact, as we mentioned last episode, British sword design may have influenced inland rather than being influenced itself by Hallstatt design. So now we've put Vix into some geographical and political context, it's time to take a closer look at the graves of the elites who so controlled this powerful trading centre. The burial itself 
was discovered in the 12th of February 1953. It was dated around 500 BC, which places it in the late Hallstatt period. Until in the 20th century it was rediscovered, the grave had remained disturbed. The burial consisted of a timber mortuary house and a central room encased by a 33 diameter mound. The central room measured 9 metres square and contained the body and the grave goods. The body lay on a bronze decorated wagon at the centre of the room, much like the other burials we've discussed previously, although the wheels of the wagon had been removed and placed against the eastern wall of the chamber. The body in the burial was of a woman. Estimated to be no more than 35 years of age, she appeared to be in good health, apart from the fact she suffered tooth decay, which was very common due to the flawed nature of milling flour during this period and, in fact, up until relatively modern times. The woman was of high status, and archaeologists have suggested she was either a female ruler or a priestess. Either way, she was a significant person in her society and became known as the Princess of Vicks. The body of the princess was dressed in a large torque, two amulets of gold, lignite and a bronze anklet. She also wore a necklace of amber diorite and serpentine beads, a 24 karat gold necklace weighing 480 grams. These items were both local and Mediterranean. The torque, while locally manufactured, shows Mediterranean features in its design. For example, that gold torque, though Hallstatt in character, featured two winged horses, highly reminiscent of images of the Pegasus we see in the Greek world. Although the fabric of the princess's clothing didn't survive, we can imagine the sophistication of the embroidery and the precious nature of the materials simply by looking at eight pairs of coral fibulae which have been identified as Italian in origin. The artistry of the Vicks burial and other grave goods also emphasizes this Mediterranean look. They included many imported items from Greece and Italy including attic pottery cups and Etruscan basins. The most spectacular item was over 1.5 meters high and has been featured on the Instagram before. It is a massive bronze wine amphora, which is Greek in origin. And in fact, the one featured in the Vic's grave is the best example found from antiquity to have survived. I'm going to take a minute to describe this creator in more detail. The largest and most famous of the finds in the burial is an elaborately decorated bronze volute crater of 1.63 meters in height, or 5 foot 4, and over 200 kilograms, or 450 pounds. Craters were vessels for mixing wine and water, common in the Greek world, and usually made of clay. The Vicks crater has become an iconic object as it represents both the wealth Hallstatt chiefs and the art of late archaic bronze work. The crater was made of individual pieces with alphabetical markings, indicating that it was probably transported to Braguer du Saint in pieces and assembled in situ. 
The vase proper is made of a single sheet of hammered bronze that weighs about 60 kilograms. Its bottom is rounded, its maximum diameter is 1.27 meters, and its capacity of 1100 liters. Its walls are only 1 millimeter to 1.3 millimeters thick, and the crater was found crushed by the weight of the tumuli above. It had telescoped completely, and the handles were found at the same level as the base, and it was restored after excavation. Its foot was made of a single moulded piece, its diameter of about 74 centimetres, and it weighed 20 kilograms. It received the rounded bottom of the main vase and ensured its stability. It is decorated with stylized plant motifs. The three handles, supported by rampant lionesses, weighed about 46 kilograms each. Each is a 55 centimetre high volute, each is elaborately decorated with a grimacing gorgon, a common motif of contemporary Greek bronzes. A frieze of hoplites decorates the neck of the vessel, which is made of a bronze ring inserted into the main vase and supported the handles. It depicts eight chariots drawn by four horses and conducted by a charioteer. Each is followed by a single fully armed hoplite on foot. The frieze is an important example of an early Greek bronze relief, which has rarely survived. Considering this is one of the best examples, not only in Central Europe, but throughout the entire archaic Greek world, it is an incredibly important piece for both studying Greek bronze work of the late archaic period, as well as the wealth of the Hallstatt chieftains. It also indicates that the so-called barbarians were not given arbitrary trinkets. I cannot help but wonder how many tons of iron, copper and tin or slaves this spectacular piece was worth, especially when full of all that wine. Speaking of wine, the lid was a hammered bronze sheet weighing 13.8 kilograms and and shaped to fit the crater's opening. It's concave and perforated by multiple holes, probably because it also served as a strainer for purifying wine. A prostitution as his centre supports a 19-centimetre statuette of moulded bronze depicting a woman with one outstretched arm, which once may have held an object such as a plastinex, which is a bowl for drinking wine. And she wears a peplops, the body-length ancient Greek garment worn by women and her head is covered by a veil. The statuette appears of an older style than the figures on the rest of the vessel, and experts of the late archaic Greece believe this is to be a depiction of a game often played at Greek symposia. For those who do not know, a symposia is a sort of house party involving drinking, wine, people lying prostrate on couches, reciting poems, discussing ideas, and playing party games. For the number of goods related to wine drinking, this was one of many aspects of Mediterranean culture embraced by the Hallstatt chieftains, as we demonstrated in the last episode with our imitation symposia, but placed in the context of a tribal chieftain's hall. This is a truly fascinating meeting of cultures, and I often wonder to what extent this cultural exchange penetrated below the absolute top of society. 
From the structure of the settlements and other evidence of hierarchical stratification, it seems as though not much. The Greco-Halstatt structure at the centre of Vix in its innermost ring of the settlement, and considering the elite association access to Mediterranean culture provided the Hallstatt princes, it is likely that any trader or craftsman would be kept very close to home, as seen in the many hill forts, including the Hohneberg, where the metal workers were kept close to the elite in the centre of the settlement, despite the obvious risk of fire. It also reinforces the status of Hallstatt women, the burial shows Hallstatt women were important people and did not necessarily acquire their status due to their relationship with men. Gold was a symbol of power to the early Hallstatt chieftains and the amount the princess took to her grave indicates her social standing. Although it is the earliest, the Vix burial is not the only high-status Hallstatt female burial in the area. A series of similar graves spread over the Rhine and Moselle area where women were accorded burials sometimes more splendid than many of the male chieftains. So taken together with finds at other Hallstatt sites, we can at the very least say that Hallstatt women were more overtly valued in their society compared with their Mediterranean counterparts. To my mind, the comparison is closer to that of Persian royal women at the court of Darius and Xerxes, or even the contemporary Scythians of the steppe. We already saw their influence in the eastern Hallstatt zone with horseback riding and tumuli burials. Perhaps this too is a legacy of the egalitarian harshness of the steppe? Finally, it is the first indicator, primary reason for the decline of Hallstatt chiefdoms and the rise of Latin culture, that being the increasing importance of the west and the trade with Massalia over the trade east and south. The riches of the Vix burial are dated only 50 years before the start of the Laten period, which is traditionally dated from 450 BC, as although Laten is named for a particularly rich site in the Swiss Alps, one of the highest concentrations of Laten wagon burials can be found in the Seine Valley and Alsace-Lorraine. Poetically, Celtic power on the continent would also be thematically ended in the region south of Vix by Julius Caesar in 52 BC at the Battle of Alasia. Okay, so that's the end of the main chronology for this episode. I have some key things to talk about coming up and have been absent for a fair while, mainly due to my primary job requiring the majority of my attention. But, dear listeners, I have not been idle. I've been running several little projects through my Instagram, the first of which has been a tour of the Celtic sites in my local region, which is an absolute crossing point of cultures on the British Isles, including my local Brythonic Celts and their troubles with the locals, as well as one of the most southernly Pictish brocks in the country at Torwood Lee. Related to that, I then head up to Aberdeenshire, where I had the chance to speak to Dr. Gord Noble of the University of Aberdeen and head of the Northern Picts Project, and I got a tour of the famous coastal fort at Burghead. Once Dr. Noble and his team have finished going through their various finds, he has agreed to be interviewed for the podcast, so please send in any questions you would like answered before the end of October. In addition, I've been working on reviewing Kells, a novel of the 8th century by Amy Crider, who has also agreed to interview. This wonderful and compelling novel acts as a guide to the keepers of Celtic Christianity as well as a tour of the world of the 8th century in Europe. I have to say it absolutely blew me away. 
It has it all. Gaelic kings, Irish myths, Vikings, Saxon intrigue, and even encounters with the Holy Roman Emperor and the Caliph of Baghdad. So with season one winding down to the end of the Hallstatt period, with only a few episodes left and some downtime to work on season two, the content will still be coming during the gap in the chronology. But for those not following me on Instagram, I urge you to, as you're missing a great deal of content, just search Celtic History Podcast, one word, and you'll be able to find it. Also, thank you so much to the patrons. Right now, your generous contributions are contributing to the hosting fees, and I am no longer out of pocket doing this project. After getting a taster on the Instagram, I urge you to go to patreon.com slash Celtic History Pod and donate whatever you feel you can to my humble little project. Because if I get enough funds behind it, I will be able to visit some of these sites and do more on-site interviews and tours of various sites across Europe. I'm starting with the British Isles for now because it's within my budget. Uh, I am limited by where I can drive to and get back to in a day. Um, But I am more than happy to expand this if I have the financial backing behind me, as I've got to take the whole clan with me most of the time. For any questions, comments, concerns or corrections, please email me at CelticHistoryPodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's Celtic History Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much, and I'll see you next time, hopefully sooner, on the Celtic History Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>